Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about the reopening of Tiffany's flagship store in New York, Watches and Wonders in Geneva, and Signet Jewelers Investor Day. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. New York City. I am coming your way soon. I'm very excited. Yes, and you're, you'll be there for the Tiffany flagship reopening, correct? Correct. People will be listening to this, and I, I will be more or less en route. It's on the 27th, Thursday evening. They're calling it the Landmark, which I can't remember. I don't know if that's been its name or if that's just the way they've kind of rechristened it. But yes, after three years of renovation, Tiffany and Company is reopening its Fifth Avenue flagship. They're having a shindig. I'm told it's rather exclusive. There'll be 400 people there. I will be one of them. Bernard Arnault, the CEO, the head, the grand poobah of LVMH. World's world's richest man. World's also. richest man, uh, making moves is uh, was the only name on the invitation. So take it, he'll be there. And so they spent three years doing this, and it was a big deal when they announced it. It was even actually announced under previous management prior to LVMH. So are they really going to make this very fancy? Because it, it had kind of a homey quality, the Tiffany flagship, which I personally liked. I understand, you know, it may not be what a Tiffany shopper likes, but do you have any sense of what they're going to be doing with it? Are they really going to be gussing it up so to make it this kind of like landmark as they're calling it? Yeah, I suspect they will be gussing it up. I had the opportunity to interview Tiffany CEO Anthony LeDrew back in the fall for a piece I was writing about the expansion of jewelry manufacturing in the branded jewelry category for the Times. And well, he made clear that brick and mortar is a huge focus for the brand. Their landmark, the New York City flagship is, I think, the heart and soul of Tiffany. In fact, that is a direct quote, but they're also expanding and renovating flagships all over the world, including places like Seoul and Sao Paulo and places maybe where they hadn't put a big focus. So there's a parallel story here about the importance of brick and mortar three years you know, after the start of the pandemic. And I think for a time, we might have all thought we'd be virtual, digital, and everything was moving into that world. And that's not the case at all. The importance of brick and mortar, I would say, is more apparent than ever. So I do think he, when he spoke, it sounded like things were generally going to be upscale. Even the silver selection was just going more upscale. So I don't know that I don't anticipate much hominess. I expect it to be very impressive, very sleek very, not to say it won't be warm. I mean, it, I don't anticipate it'll be clinical or cold, but I do think it'll be very luxe. A kind of a terrible thing for me to admit, I spent so little time in the old Tiffany and Company or the old Fifth Avenue flagship that I don't really even recall what it felt like. I have this vague memory of what the entry floor looked like. And maybe I went upstairs once to their home goods space. I know you'd done a little reporting there from their cafe. So I don't 
recall that much about what it felt like or what the what the vibe was. I mean, so I went in there expecting to be very snobby. It was actually during when we were doing mystery shopping. So I went with my wife and we pretended to be an engaged couple looking for an engagement ring. And everybody was really, really extremely nice. I have to say this, the service was, was nice. And it actually, when we got in there, it kind of looked like a department store. Like it had this kind of old New Yorkish feel. And, you know, I can see why LVMH or maybe even the previous management wanted to upgrade it a little bit. But to me, it felt very welcoming because, you know, I've been in department stores, so I kind of know what that's like. And then there was a, a second floor that had like upscale and that that you definitely got like a chillier, snobbier vibe from. But I remember I really liked the vibe of the original flagship, but I assume they're going to change it because I'm not there. I'm not who they want to appeal to. <laughs> I'm who they want to keep out. So yeah, don't um, please. No, Rob, you I, I'm sure they would love to appeal to you. But yes, yeah. I think they're they're target does seem to be a bit more palpably affluent and luxe and so on. Yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to the party because I suspect a lot of their ambassadors will be there, Lady Gaga and Beyonce and God, who knows who else. But it does, I mean, I don't normally fly across the country for a party. So I do think it'll be worthwhile. And just, I mean, just even in the offhand chance, I am able to overhear a comment from Bernard Arnault, I think would be interesting and valuable because he really is in some ways one of the most interesting figures in the luxury world in general. I mean, just LVMH is making some huge moves. So more to come on that after I get there mm -hmm. and have it. You yourself are about to have a in-person experience. Um, you're heading yes. to Conclave. Yes, I'm going to the AGS Conclave in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And I think Andre Agassi is speaking, so that should be exciting and interesting. And I'm speaking, which is, uh, I don't know if it's as exciting and interesting as Andre Agassi, but is. Is. I'll be there. And uh, I always like, I think, I, yeah, I've been to Conclave recently, but it's always, a, it's always a really interesting event and a great event. And, you know, it's definitely a good place to get to take the temperature of the kind of elite of uh, U.S. jewelers. Yeah. And it's the it's that first week of May, correct? Just the first few days of May. Yeah. And what's the what's the session you're is it are you moderating something or are you just the session I'm leading is uh, we have the head of JBT and we have uh, Sherry Smith, who's been on our podcast. Mm -hmm. We also have um, Holly Weshi, who's also been on our podcast. It's about taking the temperature of the industry. So it should be interesting and, you know, discussing what's going on at retail. And, you know, JBT has a lot of great stats. So and so does Sherry Smith for that. So basically getting a sense of, you know, what's going on in the business, how people are holding up. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing your takes and, and your takeaways because it's been a confusing year, I think, for, for people, a very confusing year. And this kind of lingering specter of recession, I, I still don't know. Are, are we definitively in the clear? Are we still thinking one might be looming? How have jewelry sales held up? All of these are questions. And, and I, I feel like people are, are waiting for some guidance. So I'd really look forward to hearing what you have to say when you get home. Mm -hmm. And as usual, you've been on a trip. I, I get to talk about my trip, which is a relatively unusual thing, but um, <laughs> you, you were just uh, in Switzerland, I believe for watches and wonders? Yeah, I mean, just, it feels like it's been a few weeks now, but at, yes, um, at the very end of March, I did my annual pilgrimage to Geneva, but what was different about this year at Pell Expo, the convention center in Geneva, where Watches and Wonders takes place, is that the Chinese were back in full force. And most Asian participants, whether they were buyers or retailers or press, last year felt like a very quiet show in Geneva because 
China was still quarantined and people weren't traveling. And this year, the crowds, the masses were back. It felt in a way, I heard a lot of people compare it to Basel World because even though the nature of the convention center is much different than Basel, where you had different halls and people could come out into the city and take their trams and then cross and go to a different hall. Well, Expo in Geneva is just much more of an enclosed space, but there was that real crowded atmosphere that we re- remember of Basel World. And that was, I, you know, I think it was good in the in the way that it felt very busy and upbeat and buzzy. It was frustrating for just logistical purposes because at Pell Expo, they serve you lunch, but if you can't find a place to sit, you cannot eat your lunch. So, um, and then lunches are generally pretty good. So it was, you know, a lot of kind of angling for a seat somewhere, trying to, because you don't have much time at these events. You really, you're, I was booked on the half hour almost all day long. So if somebody canceled or if I was late, it you know, it becomes really challenging to kind of even figure out how to go to the bathroom, much less eat a whole meal. So other than that, um, I'd say it was a really upbeat show and maybe surprisingly so. I think we all expected the watch industry to finally have some sort of reckoning with reality that, you know, the past few years have been so good. And then we saw the secondary market start to tank last May with the crypto collapse. And, you know, secondary prices are still down, but lots of people will point out that they're still well above their pre-COVID levels. And they even started to rebound a little. And in general, People seem to be in great moods. I I think I was anticipating a little more, you know, a little more reluctance, a little more pessimism. There were a ton of new watch introductions. And I guess the most talked about, perhaps no surprise, was Rolex, which did something very out of the ordinary for Rolex in that it made a couple of very colorful watches that got a lot of attention. One was called the Celebration Dial, and it had a bunch of different kind of massive balloons on the dial, all different colors. And the second watch was, I guess, something they call an off-catalog model. You can't really find it on their website. I can only imagine it's going to be next to impossible to track down, but it has emojis that it's like a day date, but instead of the actual day, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you have a different emoji that circles through and there's 31 of them. Isn't there one that has like phrases or was that yeah, the emoji? This one, this one has phrases. Um, I guess it's like seven different words and I have to look back on what they are, but they're, you know, kind of hopeful spiritual in some way. Hope, I think, is actually one of them. And, you know, it was really different for Rolex. Someone pointed out it was the only time they'd ever seen Rolex introduce a concept piece. Yeah, Um, it has more of a sense of humor, a little whimsy, which is not something you associate with Rolex necessarily. No, not at all. And I think most of the people I spoke to loved it because one of the points somebody made to me was, you know, you go into a watch store and everything kind of looks the same. You cannot get mad at Rolex for trying to change that. And no, you can't. I mean, uh, there were a lot of like I looked on the Hodinkee site to see what people thought about those pieces. And predictably, the comments were troll like and hater esque. But I don't know that Hodinkee's commenters can be relied upon as accurate takes on the marketplace, because I think most people I spoke to just thought, wow, that's cool. I mean, the the trouble is nobody will really see these pieces. They're going to be snapped up almost instantaneously. So that was cool. And as a side note, I got invited to a Rolex shindig. And again, that's very unusual 
schedule. Rolex does have events here and there. This was at their headquarters in Geneva and it was a beautiful space and it was just a press party. And I'll say the last time I was invited to a press party in Geneva at Rolex headquarters was never. So the fact that they wanted a bunch of press to show up at their hallowed headquarters is yet another sign that things are moving a little differently at the crown. So I think that was really cool and it was really fun. They had um, kind of an event space downstairs that I think normally they use as a place to screen presentations perhaps or maybe films, but they had just a running kind of clips of all these different famous films that didn't necessarily have anything to do with Rolex, but you know, Rolex is a big supporter of the Academy. They were the key sponsors of the Academy Museum and its gala. They obviously support the Oscars. They did the whole green room, which I went to see right before the Oscars. So it was really fun and it was really cool to just see my fellow press and my fellow editors and just have a chat and a drink. And it was like the Monday night of watches and wonders. So that was probably one of the highlights just because it was such a building. Yeah. Did anyone bring up the Rolex secondhand program? Because I remember last year we were trying to figure out how that's going to work and people still aren't sure, I guess. Still aren't sure. Um, I spoke to a couple of people about it, not Rolex people. Rolex people don't comment on that stuff, but I had a car ride in the morning to the Pal Expo Convention Center with Aryan Vanderval, who is the CEO of Watchfinder, which is Richemont's pre-owned online mm-hmm. dealer. It's been around for 20 plus years. And funny enough, Cartier actually at the fair or maybe right after announced its own pre-owned program through Watchfinder. So I think what's happening is that sites like Watchfinder that are Richemont owned are probably diversifying and trying not to, I mean, they don't want to be too heavy in Rolex, even though I'm sure that's been a huge part of their business because they may not be able to compete with the official certified pre-owned that Rolex now offers through retailers. I don't know if any other retailers have brought it on or signed on yet. It was Booker, the Swiss retailer, as of December. I had a very brief chat with Tim Strakey, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, who's the co-CEO of Chrono24. It's definitely affected business there, but the deal is that those models, that the certified pre-owned models that Rolex blesses are, you know, a huge chunk of change more. There's a premium there, up to 35%, I think, compared to models that you might find on the open market, the open secondhand market. I think it's still a little too early to tell, but in general, I do think if you were a secondhand dealer or are a secondhand dealer and you were invested heavily in Rolex, pre-owned Rolex, you're probably figuring out ways to refocus your business model. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural, untreated diamonds. They provide diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their greeting services. So you went right after, I think, uh, Credit Suisse uh, imploded. Yeah. And I, I asked about it. I was curious myself. Are, are people nervous? It No. People were not nervous or they certainly didn't let on. It did not seem like that was a factor. I was surprised because 
maybe i mean you know there's there's other banks there you i guess ubs that must be swiss right i don't know i imagine that that would have made some watch companies nervous because clearly some must bank at credit suisse nope it was not nearly it was not a talking point at all which surprised me i wanted to ask you so you just did a story on signet so did you because they they had was it an earnings call or was it a sort of a presentation at the new york stock exchange what what was yes, it yes they had a investor day where they do a whole presentation about the company for investors and all the big executives were there and it was uh, interesting and it was I've, I've never been actually again not just you go places i actually went to downtown manhattan too. But uh, yeah, I've never I've never actually been to the stock exchange. So that was that was interesting. And uh, it was, you know, basically talking about what's happening at the company and obviously trying to paint a very upbeat picture of what's going on. And, you know, they, they I have to say, I mean, I think it was a couple hours of presentation. I have to give them credit because they're just they're doing a lot right now. And it's it is like, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing this. And you my, like my brain couldn't hold it all. Like you, you wonder how these executives kind of keep track of all the stuff that they're doing in this company and maybe you know it's a little unwieldy or too big or something but yeah they're I mean they're doing a lot of stuff and they had a lot of great ideas usually you go to some of these things and sometimes there's one or two things you think okay that's not so great or I'm the the, everything was extremely professional everything was very well thought out and you had the feeling this company is in uh, extremely uh, capable and certainly professional hands uh, going forward I mean there's just so much that they're doing and it sounds like they realize they're they don't want to spread themselves even more thinner right yeah they said they're probably not going to do another i mean who knows you know it's not something i mean i think especially like the blue nile thing was very something that was kind of crossed their desk and and they probably jumped on it but yeah i would uh, i think they're not going to do any more big acquisitions i i should say another interesting thing that i noticed was you know so they had this kind of row of executives and it was like all women and one man whereas kind of like the makeup of jck where i'm the only man on jck but um like if you did that five or six years ago it would be all men and maybe one woman Mm -hmm. so you know it's it's a very very different company than it was you know before gina drosis came in and, you know, it's uh, a lot of the executives were relatively new. She mentioned that, you know, most of them had been there for less than four years. But, you know, it's definitely an experienced crew. And they just, it's like the kind of thing I have to like listen to again and again, because it was just so much information mm. conveyed about we're doing this and we got this and percentage and, you know, things about that they're expanding to services and accessible luxury. And, you know, we want to do more with Bridal. We want to do more with Kay. We want to do more with Jared. And, you know, it's just, it just, they just have really a lot going on. Well, you know, that accessible luxury, maybe you can elaborate a little on what they mean by that, because haven't they always been accessible luxury? I think their their price points are going higher. They're not at Tiffany level, but I think they're definitely targeting uh, higher price points. And I think, I believe in the last earnings call, they, they mentioned that, you know, they see a lot of strength on the on the high end of the spectrum, you know, rather than because traditionally, you know, K and Zales were kind of like middle class jewelers. And I think they also want to target that that kind of high end, uh, you know, people who buy from Blue Nile, like the kind of tech executives, perhaps who go to Blue Nile or, you know, Diamonds Direct, you know, th- these are things with higher price points. One of the things that I found interesting is, you know, all so they have these four 
quote unquote accessible luxury brands, which is James Allen, Jared, Blue Nile, and uh, Dimes Direct, right? And they're all, or at least started, or at least at some point in their existence, became very kind of male focused. So you wonder if somebody like yourself or like uh, some of the Cigna executives, you know, if they wanted to go and buy a kind of nice piece for themselves, which of those brands would they go to? And I, I did get the sense that they wanted Jared to kind of be kind of a more of an upscale kind of neighborhood jeweler type of place, which, you know, in addition to it, I mean, it's heavily bridal, but they also have like a lot more designer stuff, a lot more, bringing in a lot more designer names, starting to increase the, the number of watches, but it may not necessarily be a place that a female self-purchaser goes to just because it's traditionally been male-oriented. It's called Jared, which is a male name. And it, you know, he went to Jared. The traditional positioning has not been of a kind of a general jewelry store. Though I think at the beginning it was it was kind of situated as this this superstore idea. And then I think they 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 switched it a little bit. But you know, I think that's probably something that they're gonna have to try to look at. Like if you want a higher end accessible luxury female self-purchaser, where does she go among these brands which are you know, I can't necessarily see somebody who's like a high-end corporate executive going to Zales necessarily or Jared. And so, I mean, I think that's what they're trying to do. And they're definitely moving Jared up as far as price points and as far as perception. They said they wanted to be the kind of entranceway into the accessible luxury division or, you know, segment of Signet. So that's just, that's something that's big. And, and, you know, to me, it just, I just consider accessible luxury basically higher price points, but not very high price points. So what is that? Is that like $10,000 or is it? I don't know, you know, so they mentioned, I don't, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah. But I, I assume, you know, something that, that you need a couple of thousand dollars for, it's going to, it's going to hurt your uh, bank account, I guess, depending on your bank account, I guess. But, you know, something that costs a decent amount of money and is not just like a cheap thing, but it's something that's considered luxury and high end and it has a nice brand and a nice story attached to it and is a beautiful piece. Yeah. The thing about this business, and I, I'm sure you'll relate, is it's always been very confusing to me because accessible can mean totally different things to a millionaire than to me. My accessible is $300. A millionaire's accessible, maybe 15000 And, you know, some people will say that there's no such <laughs> that if something's luxury, it's luxury. It's not accessible. That's the whole point, right? So yes. the, the idea of accessible luxury is uh, oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. But, you know, I think they're they're going for that higher end buyer who's not necessarily going to go into a, a Tiffany or a Cartier, but want something nice for themselves. Yeah. And I know Jared has a lot of emphasis on its custom design capabilities. And, and that's that's a big part of their... I, I think they've had trouble, certainly in the last couple of years, figuring out what they want Jared to be. And, uh, you know, this is something that I've asked them about a bunch of times and they always basically deny it. But, you know, I know for a fact that people at Blue Nile consider James Allen a, a competitor. People at Jared consider Diamonds Direct a competitor and vice versa. I mean, these were competing stores. So e even though they have kind of different offers and different kind of brand personalities and different images, they are considered competitors. So I think it's 
possible, I mean, they always deny this, that you might see at some point some kind of rationalization of all these different banners, as they call them. But uh, for now, it seems to be, uh, you know, doing okay. And I guess another thing that that struck me was they had all these stats on engagements that they said engagements fell. People weren't dating during COVID. It's been a low engagement year, and they expect engagements to kind of get back to normal levels in a year or two. And I think what struck me there is that's the kind of data back in the day we all used to get from De Beers, if you remember. They used to have all sorts of data on anniversaries and engagement. And that was when De Beers was unquestionably the market leader in diamonds. And now we have a situation where Signet is unquestionably the market leader in U.S. jewelry retail. And they've kind of become, you know, the keeper of the stats. Well, God bless them because we don't have anywhere else to get them. So that's true. (laughs) So thank you for that. Awesome. All right. Well, really nice to chat with you as always, Rob. Um, I don't know if I'll see you when I swan through New York, but if I don't, um, have a wonderful time in Louisville. Yes. Thank you. And I hope to see uh, everybody soon. And and Vegas is coming up. So let's get psyched. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.